The following is a Bible study taught at First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. At FBC, we endeavor to handle God's Word accurately, that believers may understand what God is doing through history and what He has planned for believers in the present. We hope you will find this study helpful in better knowing God. More audio and written studies can be found at graceteaching.net under resources. And now, our speaker. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll uh, look into our study here this morning. Our Father, we're thankful again for this privilege of being together. We're thankful for your word and what it tells us and how uh, even as we think of divisions within the world and the way different people look at themselves in terms of uh, races and nations and all of these different things that might divide us, that everything that uh, your son has accomplished on the cross and those things that you have counted true of us, uh, they erase all those reasons for division. And they give us every reason to be unified as believers. The world doesn't have this. They don't know this, but we can. And we can experience this in the way that we get along. And we would thank you for this then. We also want to remember uh, brothers and sisters with needs. We realize that uh, every one of us, we come in here and there's things that are burdens and concerns to us that go unexpressed. But we know that uh, you care about those things and we just want to share even in those uh, and uh, for uh, what you are doing there. And we thank you for that also. Amen. So as we're talking about God's glory, we've talked about last week, we again reviewed that we're talking about glory. We're talking about God's weight, his significance, his reputation, what he's demonstrating about himself and his character uh, in this. We are in, we, we're doing a quick walkthrough of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 because we have several statements here about the glory of God. And we saw in these opening verses here in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're not going to go back and teach it all, so we're just going to review that when you look at all these things that are related to who we are in Christ, he can make that statement to the praise of the glory characterized by grace. His reputation characterized by grace. So we saw that one. Then he talked to us about how we need to use our minds for that. Then he talked about a mystery. That mystery is about how all of us together... And with identified with Jesus Christ in the Christ, how we will reign in the future with him. How we're, he's going to head up all things. That would have been a shock, if you remember, if you were a Jew, to be told, you're not just going to reign over everything, which is what you anticipated in the Old Testament, that you were going to be the head and the nations would be the tail. No, this is going to be that there's going to be this other group of people Jews and Gentiles knit together, made something altogether different, and we're going to rule with him. And he looks at that as the Christ, which we talked about, and he says again, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And in regard to that, he's made us his inheritance. We, all of us as believers, are something Christ inherits. And you remember the illustration I used last week of this? Because my wife mentioned this because she was out of the room, so she didn't hear me mention it. But she likes to watch these videos where people take old stuff. I mean, stuff that if you were out back behind your building, a building that you had, you had inherited from somebody and you found something buried in there made of metal that's probably been sitting in the dirt for 60 years. And it's just, you look at it, it's just covered with rust. I would take it and say, we're throwing that in the junk pile and taking it to the scrap, to the scrap heap and let them melt it down. But there's a guy or guys that they clean all these things up. Maybe they're ladies for all I know. They're wearing gloves so you can't see their hands. But they clean all these things up. And when they're done, you're like, wow, that looks like it's just 
brand new off the shelf of the store. And that's an illustration of the fact that, and I've known people to inherit something like, oh, I inherited something from great aunt Bessie. And they get it and you're like, what in the world? This is a piece of junk. But somebody that knows what to do with it can make a piece of junk something valuable, like these things. And God makes us something actually worth inheriting. That's the whole point. That's to the praise of his reputation. He, Christ doesn't go, oh, good, I inherited Tim. Tim is, oh, man, oh, I always wanted him on my team. Glad I got, no, it's not like that. It's like God has done a work in me, just like he's doing a work in you. And he, that work makes us something worthy of inheriting. I think that's very important. Popular Christianity you hear this a lot in popular Christian music today that it's like God did everything to get me, but not because I was valuable. That sometimes comes across sometimes when you listen to some of this, right? It's like God did everything to get me like because I was a prize, but I'm a prize only because of what he did in me and for me, not because he looked on the shelf and said, oh, that's... Any, any, any of you ever watched the show American Pickers? I'm just trying to illustrate this well. Yeah, it, it, it's a bad show if you're a hoarder. <laughs> it's a bad show if you're a hoarder. Because everything you have, everything, you, everything, you, everything a person has, that's valuable. But, you know, you go in there, and you got people that come in, and they're, they've got this thing, and they're positive that this thing, man, the person's going to tell you, yeah, you know what? You inherited this from your great-granddad, and that thing is worth a lot of money. I bet you could get $500 for that thing. Oh, yeah. But then somebody else comes in there going, yeah, you might get $20 in an antique store. <laughs> it's not worth that much, see? And it's just that sometimes we like to think that we are really valuable and all that. I'm, I'm elaborating more than I need to, but just a reminder, when we're talking about being Christ's inheritance, he's inheriting us because of the work that God's doing in us that makes us valuable. We're that, uh, we're that uh, what is that, egg flipper pulled out of the drawer that got all bent and the person takes it. There's a joke that we listen to, a guy that talks about that and he brings it to, a, you know, to the, uh, one of those shows. Anyway, here we go. And then he has sealed us in Christ. Now, part of the reason that he sealed us in Christ is so that as his inheritance, we end up there the way God intends us to end up there. We don't end up there battered and bruised in a mess. We actually show up in the end, because of his work, everything he's planned for us to be. So that we really are something worthy of inheriting at that point. Again, because of what he's done not because of who we are of ourselves. And then, again, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 where we are. We want to kind of put in now, um, if we go down to verse 14 here in chapter 1, he's given us the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last time. And then if we go on down to verse 18, and he says, and I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Now, your heart doesn't have eyes, but we all get the image. That What do you do with your heart? You make decisions with your heart. So there, though your heart doesn't have eyes, he's using that as a metaphor we get about this place where you make decisions, that it has eyes that it can see, this is his picture that he's given us, might be enlightened, that light might be shed on them. And if you ever feel your way around in the dark, ever, any of you ever go someplace and you think that you can get someplace in the dark and you find out it's much harder 
I mean, we had a grandson stay with us for a couple of days. The footstool in front of my chair, our chair, pardon me, got moved. And I got up in the night and walked back out there after having been someplace where it was a little brighter. And I ran into the footstool because it was not where it was supposed to be. You need light for your eyes. We, your eyes depend on light. And he says, your heart, the eyes of your heart, they need light so that you may know, he says, what is the hope of his calling? What is this calling that he has what called us? This is verse 18. This calling. Keep your finger here and just flip over to chapter 4 for a moment. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prison Lord, I encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve or to, to guard the unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. See, this calling, it's one. And that calling is to a unity in the body of Christ. You can't make other people get along with you. You can turn back over to chapter 1. You can't make other people get along with you, but you can be, as we always say, you can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. You can be the person that works at getting along with other people even when they don't want to get along with you or even when they continue to be their same ornery selves. Not that none of us are ever ornery in any way, but you get the point. So when he's saying this here in chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you can see what the hope of this calling is. He just got done talking about us as Christ's inheritance, talking about us as, as those that are going to be reigning with Christ, part of that, that unity. This is part of all this hope that we're all together. When, when, when we're reigning with Christ, he's not going to be having to say, hey, knock it off over there. Tim and whoever's sitting by Tim, you guys are quit arguing about, it's not like, Tim's going, I don't think his idea is any good. I think we ought to do it this way. That's maybe church business meetings. Hopefully not in our church, but that's church business meetings, right? But when we are everything we're supposed to be and we're united with Christ and we're reigning with him, if, if, uh, is, as I've used the illustration, if he actually asks Linda, what should we do with this situation down here? And she gives an idea. You're not going to have anybody raising their hand going, uh-uh, no, no, I'm not in with that. Everybody's going to, we're going to be in agreement on these things. And I think it's important for us to see that even now, even now, we can actually be seeing this hope of our calling. Verse In the middle of verse 18, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints? Notice, it's riches. It's generous riches of his glory, of his reputation. What he's doing with all of us. You need to be able to see that. Again, using the illustration of what's gone, gone on over just the last couple days over there in the, nation, in the land of Israel, you can see how at that time, even in this time, with a lot of these Jews scattered out to these other places, and you had Jews that were up here in Ephesus, and Paul started in the... Where'd Paul start in Ephesus? Where'd he go first? Where? The synagogue. The synagogue. He went to the synagogue. Who do you find at synagogues? 
Jews primarily. There are a few maybe Gentiles that are interested that are there, but it's 90%, 95% Jews. So he started by, by witnessing to them. But then during the week, he's also evangelizing the Gentiles. So now you've got a, a community that is primarily a group of believers that are probably a, primarily a mix of these Jews and Gentiles. And there are intense, hard feelings between some of these people. As we were using the illustration last pie, last week, you can have people from your past that acted a certain way, treated you a certain way, and now that they, even if they're not acting like that, it's hard for you mentally to let go that they were this jerk back then. I know people that think of somebody that did dirt to them 40 years ago, and 40 years later, all they can think of when they think of that person is what they did to them 40 years ago, and you just kind of want to say, let go of it. That person's probably moved on in life and you are beating yourself up thinking about this thing that happened. But these believers have something even better because they're called to this unity. And as we in this unity can get along, thinking about who we all are in Christ, it does a lot to deal with this, these tensions that have risen from the past. Verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? In other words, what makes any of us think that we could actually ever do this? Well, of ourselves, we can't. But remember, the whole point in, in all of this passage is everything that's true of you and I is because of God. It's either something that God has said or something God's given to you. In this case, you need to be able to see with your heart <coughs> the surpassing greatness of his power. He says, that power is in accordance with the strength of his might. That's the power he used with Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are ranks of spirit beings, angels we call them, that is named not only just in this age, but in the one to come. In other words, the power that raised Jesus Christ is the same power that's working in you that actually can give you and I the ability to get along. I had a believer a number of years ago that was going through something very difficult. I am not in any way denying that what this person was going through was hard and difficult. And I remember Ben was kind enough. He went along or met me there and we ended up talking with this person. And this person, I remember standing talking, this person goes, says, he says, I just can't do it. And I said, that's right. You can't do this. I said, you need God's power and you know how to avail yourself of God's power. And he goes, it's just, it's not possible. If, if, he says, if a person understood this, I said, is your situation any different than what Jesus went through when he was dealt harshly and severely by other people? And this person struggled, really struggled with that. I mean, yeah, whenever you kind of put it in that light, right? The light of what Jesus Christ went through. I mean, people could go, well, he was God. Yeah, but he didn't face those things as God. He faced those in the realm of his humanity with his human thinking, with his human heart, making decisions on how to respond. And God provides us the power to be able to face challenges and to be able to face getting along, actually gives us the power to get along. You want an expression of what that power looks like? Go read Galatians chapter 5, verses 23 to 23. We call it the fruit from the Spirit, but it's an expression of what that power can look like. It's not the only thing that that power looks like, but it's one way that that power looks. 
And then he goes on and he says here, the last part of this, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. And there's, a, I, I can guarantee you what I'm going to tell you, my opinion on this is my opinion of the way I interpret this, but I can tell you by commentaries, people have no idea for sure they have suggestions on what he means by all things in all ways. But I believe when he says the all things, because some people want to take it back to the spirit means, and I, I could see that, but when he's talking about it, the other way to look at this is to look at he's filling all the members, because this comes up again in chapter 4, he's filling all the members, and we'd say, well, the Spirit does that filling. Well, yeah, the Spirit does do filling, but sometimes he does this through all the members. He's filling all the members by all the members. He's using you as a believer to help others. He's helping other believers to help you. This is the way he works in the body of Christ. The Spirit's working in Aram's life so that Aram can be used in somebody else's life and in Dwight's life so that Dwight can be used in someone else's life and so on and so forth. And he's using all of this. <coughs> and Paul plainly says that in chapter 4. That's the way I understand this. Okay? It's real easy to take it back to the, to the all things that he subjected mean in the spirit means. I'm just not exactly for sure how he's filling spirit means in all ways. I think he's changing where he's going with this. But that's my take on this in light of the larger context of the book. So now, <clears throat> come down to some of my favorite verses in Ephesians. Go down to chapter 2 and verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were... And why is it mercy? It's because right in the context, he said you were enslaved and you were stuck living in the cravings of your flesh. Every last one of you. There's nobody that, that wasn't. That's the whole point. We all were equally in that situation. <coughs> we were all, at the end of verse 3, we were all by nature children of wrath or children of anger, which I think means we were the objects of anger. I don't know that it meant necessarily that we expressed anger, which that is true, but that's not what he's talking about. So that's why he shows us mercy. Even when we were dead, then in verse 5, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Now, we've talked about this before. Alive together, raised up together, seated together. Every one of those words, alive, raised, and seated, all have a preposition on the beginning of them in Greek. Beginning from your side be this way, right? Be over here. They have a preposition at the beginning, soon, which means closely together with. And there's two ways to understand this. <clears throat> probably maybe one of the more popular ways to take it is to take this word here and say that we were alive together with Christ, which is kind of the way it reads. Okay? But the other way to read it is we together were made alive with Christ. Now, I think that one of the passages that bears this out, and I didn't write this down, so give me, bear with me a second, but turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and I may not find it, but I'm pretty sure I think I can. Yes, there it is. Go to verse 13. I'd looked at this and I didn't add it to my notes, which I should have. Verse 13, and when you were dead by means of your trespasses and circumcision, he made you alive together with him. 
Now, this looks like the same expression, but what's different here is he puts the preposition on the front of the word made alive, and he puts the preposition by itself before the word him. So he made you together alive together with him. He's really making this clear to the Colossians because what's one of the things we know is true about the Colossian church that he tells us about? Paul's relationship to the Colossian church. Can anybody remember? Tells us at the beginning of chapter two, he'd never met him. He says, these are the things I want. He says, this is, I have never met you. What's the difference between the Colossians and the Ephesians then? He spent a lot of time with the Ephesians. He spent, in fact, how long did he, did he spend with them daily teaching them? Two years. Two, could you imagine what it, was, what it would be like to sit under Paul's teaching for two years every day of the week? In fact, I'm working on some studies that we're going to be looking at after this with regard to the church. And one thing that impresses me again and again is that the early church, you know how often they met? Every day of the week. You know why they did that? Because this was family. What do you do at the end of a work day? You come home to family, right? What did they do? They came home to family. And they were in a world that was hostile towards them. We have a world today that generally isn't that hostile towards this. But as I've said before, if it were, you'd be there. Anyway, I digress on the whole daily thing. They'd spent time daily with Paul under the instruction of his word. And so Paul, when he makes a statement in Ephesians chapters, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he doesn't have to articulate this in exactly the same way he does to the Colossians because the Colossians don't know this, but the Ephesians, he just has to say this, and they're like, oh yeah, we know this. We're all together made alive. We're all together raised up. We're all together seated with Christ in heavens. The whole point of those three verbs that he uses here, the together, is it's talking about all of us together. It's not me with Christ. It's not Gary with Christ. It's not Daryl with Christ. It's all of us with each other with Christ, right? He's reminding us of this unity. Then he's going to talk, to, and he says then, and we have to go back here in Ephesians 2, Verse 7, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace by kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about what this looks like, that when we move out into the future out there, that he's going to show us his grace. How is he going to show us his grace? By being kind to us. And not a little bit kind, but he's talking here about being rich with grace. That means there's a lot of kindness, a tremendous amount of kindness in the way that he deals with us. That's a big deal. I, I, I Honestly, to some degree, I think the failure of understanding this is one of the reasons we as believers want to fight tooth and nail for one more breath of air down here which I always, I was just reading it for another study in Philippians chapter 1 that Paul says, you know, I'm pulled between two things. You know what Paul says I want to do? Paul says, I wanted to go and I want to go and be with him. That's what I want to do. Because if I stay here, he says, I got to work. I got to work to help you guys. But Paul says, you know what? I love you guys enough. I will do this. See, there's a good motive. There's a good motive for being careful. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. 
because then Paul comes along, he says, but he says, but I love you guys enough. He says, you know what? But I'm going to stick around. If I have any say in it, I'll stick around for your sake. But I think there's some believers, they don't want to go. We don't want to die because we're afraid of what it's going to be like up there. Oh, yeah, we hear you go to funerals. Oh, it's good. They're better. This. Oh, but we don't really believe that. We're like, yeah. And so if we understand that how <clears throat> kind and gracious is, and granted, this is out there in the future, but this is even in, in the state where we're in the state of death, there's still some truth to this of what he's doing, dealing with it by grace. That grace doesn't end the moment we take our last breath here on earth. <clears throat> so let's go on to the next part of this. There's a lot of things in between that I would like to talk about. Um, talks about, let's just read through these verses. Well, let's look at the problem in here. If you guys probably are in a hurry. No, I hope you're not. <laughs> but let's read through these, these issues that he says. Go to verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, you were called uncircumcision by those who were called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Now, you and I don't get this because in our culture here in America, traditionally, for, and I don't know how long this has been going on, but most males are circumcised before they leave the hospital or shortly after they're born, if they're born at home, most of them are, okay? But in most of the world to this day, most males aren't circumcised. It's rare. I think our culture does it in part. We, we try to say we do it for hygienic reasons, but let's be honest. I think a lot of it has to do with the influence of Judaism on Christianity, but I can guarantee you Judaism didn't influence Christianity in Europe that much because Europeans didn't practice it. Europeans didn't practice it. So much so, just to make the point, not to offend anybody, but this is one of the ways when Jews tried to pass themselves off as Gentiles during World War II, that's one of the ways they checked to see if you were a Jew or not. It was that rare. It was that rare. So... These, these Jews looked at, at us as Gentiles and said, uncircumcised, which essentially in their book meant, you're not clean, you're unclean. Because in the Old Testament, that was the idea. Spiritually unclean, we're saying, not physically. Spiritually, you're unclean. So remember that at that time, you were separated from Christ. You were cut off from the politics of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. Could you imagine God made these covenant promises to Abraham and then through Moses to Israel and then to David and then promises that he made for future covenants that he made through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and we as Gentiles had no part in any of those. We got in on one of those that the nations would be blessed by Israel. We get in on their coattails a little bit. So they looked at us and said, you have no promise, have share in those covenants. And so as a result, you had no hope and you were godless in the world. Could you imagine somebody saying, you're godless? And I'm sure the Gentiles go, well, I know, I'm not godless. You, you, you only got one God. I got 20. <laughs> no, they're not real gods. And so this was this background that these people come to, this hostility where these Jewish Christians had reminded the Gentiles of what they were. And now you're in here with us. But notice what he goes on to say. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off or distant, you've now been brought near by the blood of Christ. How near? Well, for he himself is our peace, who's made both one 
and broke down that barrier that divided. By abolishing in his flesh the hostility. What was it? The law that was made up of commandments in the form of dogmatic statements. We've talked about that word ordinances before. The law not only made moral statements. Thou shalt not murder. Is that a moral statement or kind of just something that somebody just kind of thinks that might be a good idea? It's a moral statement. It's a moral statement. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that just like a good idea or is that a moral statement? It's a moral statement. Thou shalt not eat shrimp. Moral statement? Moral statement? Or something that somebody has distinguished as a good idea? Depends how much you like shrimp. Depends on how much you like shrimp, yeah. Yeah. Never bothered me a whole lot because I wasn't a big shrimp eater until Ben started hosting men's group and then he'd fix these shrimp tacos. And I don't know what he does to them, but I'm like, I actually kind of like those. <laughs> They're not bad. Not bad for bug meat. So <laughs> my wife doesn't like it when I say that. <laughs> anyway, but, but, this is, but this is the point. There are a lot of statements in the law. Case in point, I was just reading through some of these verses this last week. Why is it that when a woman under the law has a male child, she's unclean for two weeks? But if she has a female child, she's unclean for four weeks. Now, if I got the weeks wrong on there, I might I apologize. But it's like longer for the is it, is there a, is there an actual physical thing that makes her unclean longer for having no? It was it was the point that the whole law, not only the moral part of the law, but all these other things that are called ordinances, or these dogmatic statements, these things that are based on an opinion, they were designed to show Israel. What? That they couldn't be right before God. Because they stood at Sinai and says, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. And God said, really? Everything I say? Everything I say? How would you like it? Anybody, any of you ever have mildew problems in your house? It's one of the reasons we're doing our bathroom because we, we had to put a vent in it for at least one thing because we've had mildew problems on the ceiling back there because there's never been a vent. And McLean showed us, hey, they got some great paint to put up there that'll kill that stuff and won't let it come back. And I'm hoping it all works when we put it on there. But all of that to say, you know what happened if you had a house and you had mildew in it under the law? The priest, the priest came and he inspected it. Yep, that's mildew. So they clean that spot. Nope, still there. Let's take that rock out. And if it comes back, you guess what you had to do? You tore your whole house down. <laughs> you tore your whole house down. That's pretty extreme in some situations. But these are some of the things that were dictated under the law. And so when he says ordinances, the whole purpose of the ordinances, and this is why Paul mentions the ordinances here, they made a difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. And by the way, we use that word Gentile. It's an old English word that comes to us. It actually comes from an idea meaning of gentry or of family. And really what it's referring to, because in the Greek, it's the word ethnos. What do you think of when you think of ethnos? Think of like the, the mission group that Orths have served with, ethnos 360. What's that referring to? Nations. I, I honestly think to some degree, we maybe be better off if we, in our modern translations, instead of using the word Gentile, if we had Jews and the nations. 
Because that's what the idea meant. But that's just a technicality on the way we handle it. But the whole thing is the ordinances and the whole law was designed to make them different. And if you are some of these people that you're going, you're sitting in church and I'm looking at people over there going, yeah, those guys are latecomers to the show. They've come in late. We've been, we've been doing good stuff for a long time. And he says, yeah, you had all these things that just made you different. But you know what? Jesus Christ, what's he saying here? He, verse, first part of verse 15, he abolished it. Back in verse 14, he broke down that barrier. And he did all of that. So in the middle of verse 15, he might make the two, the Jew and the nations, or the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the person of the nations, make them one new man. He didn't add, he didn't say, hey, here's Israel. Let's add some Gentiles to, the, to Israel and have a new Israel. No. He says, I'm going to take some from these Jews and some from the nations and we're going to put them together and we're going to create something altogether new and different, which we know as the body of Christ, the Christ, in part the church. And that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death that hostility. And then he came and preached peace to those that were far off. That was us. But also peace to those that were near because even the ones that were near, the ones that thought they had everything, they didn't necessarily have everything. Huh. It just quit on me. I don't know. Just ignore it. <laughs> I have no idea what it did. Um... Turn my page there. Okay. No, I didn't turn my page. I just moved my fingers. Then he says, verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We both have access by one spirit to the Father. Um, let me see if I can pull this back up. I don't know that this is that big a deal, but no, it says we're still up there. Okay. I don't know. But he says, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. See, in the Old Testament, the Jews were the people that had access at the tent and then the temple to God. To now to come along and say, we have access. You don't have to go anyplace anymore. You don't have a location on earth that you need to find. We don't have a temple on earth. We, right here, when we're gathered, we're a quality of temple, Paul says, when we're gathered. We are. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're a quality of temple. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He looks at the body. We're a quality of temple. My body is a temple of the spirit. But in terms of our this, this idea, more often, this is the temple. All of us as believers. And all the believers, wherever they might be, all together are a temple. And so he preached this. He's given us access. So that you're no longer strangers and aliens... No longer strangers and aliens, uh, because that's what you were before this, obviously, if you were a Gentile. But you are fellow citizens of the saints and part of God's household. You're part of the family, shall we say. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. See, the Holy Spirit's fitting us together, verse 22, in whom... You also are being built together into a dwelling of God, a settled down at home dwelling. That's the idea of that word dwelling, a settled down at home dwelling by the Spirit. When I was growing up, 
my, my dad in the summertime, because teachers didn't make enough money to survive on, he had to do something in the summer to pay the bills. So my dad learned to lay block. And well, he did bricks too, but bricks are this, blocks, you know, are the big things with the hollow spaces in there. And I was his hod carrier, so I learned how to mix up concrete and keep the blocks down there. And you take those things, slap it up, put the blocks in there, tap, 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 check the line and move on. And he, he did pretty good. I remember them, he and uh, the other guy that he hired to help, I remember them having contests on Friday afternoon. Somebody was going to get a steak any way they wanted, depending on who laid the most blocks in an afternoon. And they would do this kind of stuff. But there were certain things you have to do when you're laying blocks. You come to places, no foundation is ever laid out perfectly that every block, you just take them right off the pile and put them in there. You have to do certain things. Got to get out that saw with the carbide blade and cut it down to size. You had to take your, your mason's chisel and you had to chisel those and you had to fit those. And that's what it's picturing here. And these people would have gotten this because this is the kind of thing they lived around. Where everybody lived in these, these houses that were put together with stones that were plastered up on the outside. And they knew what it was like when you had a rock, but it didn't quite fit. And those guys would take their things and knock the edges off and he says this is what the spirit's doing with you and i we're like these stones Paul, peter calls it that over in first peter 2 and he's picking us up and he's fitting us into the wall and he sometimes has to do fit all that so that we fit in there just right back when emily was a little kid and was in leslie's sunday school class leslie drew a picture of like a church building or a temple building i don't recall what it was but it was with bricks like this big bricks and she had those little kids write their names in those blocks because they could do that. And then she asked them, what are some other people? So they had other names. And I think Emily's had Stan on there or something like that, if I remember. She wrote Stan's name on one of those blocks in there or had Leslie help or whatever it was. But it's a picture, it's a real good image when we look at our building and we think of this and just picture, you are part of this structure but it's a spiritual structure in Christ. Which then brings us then, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> go to chapter 3, and there's a whole bunch of things, and I'm going to get bogged down, and we'll never finish this up if we don't go to the last half of the chapter. So let's go down to the last half of the chapter here in verse 3. The first part's basically telling us again that we're all united, that we all share some things in common, but if you go down to verse 9, he talked in verse 2 about this dispensation of grace, but in verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the dispensation that was a mystery. Everybody keep it in mind. How you and I live by grace, from an Old Testament point of view, that was a mystery. You couldn't find it in the Old Testament. There wasn't even a hint of it in the Old Testament. This doesn't mean God never showed grace to anybody in the Old Testament, but they didn't live their daily lives by grace. They lived under law, which meant, well, at least during the time of law, which meant there were rules that they had to keep. And if they stepped out of line with the rules, there were penalties. Some of those penalties meant you took people out of the edge of town and you piled rocks on top of them. Some of them were pretty severe. Some of them just meant your flock was going to become one smaller because you were going to have to sacrifice one of them to make amends for what you've done. 
But that idea then in verse 9, he says that was a mystery. It was for ages was hidden with God who created all things in order that the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God. God's not a one pony show. This is I do it like this. this is the only way I do it. I don't know how to do it any other way. I have done drywall, I should say, Dwight has done drywall at my house and I have helped him many times over the years. I've done drywall growing up too. But always when I've done it with him and with others, we always used mix. You know, it came in a box or a bag. You mixed it all up and this way put on. I'm trying something different. I'm trying hot mud. I've never done this before. Round one went, so far, so went okay. But I could just say and I could do it. I'm all, it's the only way I'm going to do it. I mean, Dwight was telling me the other day he's, he's done hot mud before. Uh, like this. So I'm trying something different. I'm trying to do it a different way than I've done it before. We'll find out whether it works or not or whether Tim pulls his hair out. But God, keep in mind what he's getting as God's wisdom is multifaceted. God, can't, he's got more than one way to exercise his wisdom in his dealings with mankind. For 1,500 years, he dealt with Israel under the law. Now, from our perspective, for 2,000 years, he's been dealing with us under grace. Before the law, he was dealing with people just by giving them promises. And he wasn't requiring anything of them to receive those promises. So God has done things in different ways. But as he's dealing with us by grace, he then says... In verse 10, this is very important, in order that the multifaceted wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking about spirit beings. These are angels. You ever stop and think about the fact that as you're going through life and you're living your Christian life, it's not just other people that are watching you. There are spirits around you you don't see and they're watching and they're learning something about God. So that when Tim is faced with option A, will of God, option B, what I want, and option B, what I want, maybe it's just not that it's just not what God wants, maybe it's actually sin, and I choose to do this, and I take that step through there and I sin under the law, there would have been a penalty, but under grace, God's going, well, are you going to get back over here on the track, Tim? Are you going to come back over here and do it the way I want you to do it? And the spirit beings are going, this is like the thousandth and one time that Tim's done this. And God's given him grace again. Whoa! They're learning something about God's multifaceted wisdom in how they're watching him deal with us by grace. This is especially true now as he's taking both these groups, putting them together as one. Then he goes on, and I want you to look down here, verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation or my trouble on your behalf, for that's your glory. This is your glory. This is part of your reputation, how we go through trouble. So look at how I'm going through trouble, and don't then go, ah. He goes, look at what you're going through. And realize that there's something here where you get to show some of the reputation God has planned for you as a believer by the way you're functioning. He's talking about himself, but he's trying to encourage the believers with the way they get along. And what is their challenge, by the way? What, what is the thing where they need to be doing some of this in the way that they 
are getting along with each other. This isn't, this isn't those big sins out there in the world that Christians crazy. That's big sin. Oh yeah, Sister Joe and Brother Bob, they just can't get along. That's a little thing. But that guy over there, why, he did this. He did this horrible thing. You know what? I honestly, though, while we might look at those things that way as horrible from God's point of view, it's when you and I are actually like this and button heads and we aren't getting along as believers, that to God is a bigger deal than probably somebody that goes out there and, I don't know, does robs a, robs a store or something like that. I mean, that to us seems like a really big deal, but God's actually more concerned about this unity. It's not that he's not concerned about that. Don't get me wrong. But this actually, from God's point of view, when you go through the word of God, that's a much more serious issue. So from that point, he then says, verse 14, for this reason then, I bow my knees before the Father. Bowing your knee before the Father. We'd slap in modern Christianity the word worship on there because that's essentially what he's doing. He's taking like an Old Testament position of bowing before God, bowing my knee as I worship, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. What does he mean by these families? The Fanning family is named after him and the Black... no. The family that is Israel and the family that is the church. That's why he says every family, uh, he says they're in heaven and on earth. We're these heavenly people. Israel is God's earthly people. That he would give to you according to the riches of his glory. Remember that we were just looking at that glory a little while ago in chapter 1. That there's power there that you need. And he says, glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Not strength here, but strength in here. Strength in the hearts where you make decisions. It's this. It's in the inner man. So that he may, do that. so that, and this is said, that Christ might dwell in your hearts. Now we've talked about this before. He's not talking about Jesus Christ coming down and dwelling in your hearts. That's not what he means here. He actually has a definite article in front of Christ, and he's referring to the Christ. This Jesus Christ is the head, sharing his identity with us, the body. Christ already dwells in, my, dwells in me. But what he's talking about here is this idea, understanding of who the whole Christ is, that it might settle down in home through your hearts through faith, that you being, and those through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded are two different ways. One, rooted, we get the idea of a tree with a good root, root ball in it. We get wind, crazy windstorms around here, right? And are there days when the wind roars and roars and, and a person might be amazed that all the trees stay standing? But you know why the trees stay standing? Because they have good root systems that cause them, that God designed them to hold up against the wind. The second part is that word grounded is on a foundation. When they built this building here they just didn't start throwing bricks down on the sand i know a person here in town that did that they wanted to put in a wall by their place and i pointed out once in a while when peg and i walked by and they didn't pour a footing they just started throwing blocks down in the sand putting them together and they created a wall and that wall is like this it's not founded very well you wouldn't want to build on it but he's telling us here that we can be rooted and grounded in love we can actually have a root like a tree that holds us against the wind or a strong foundation put in properly so that with love, we are strong enough 
verse 18, that you might be able then to comprehend with all the saints, and that word able is made strong, literally, be able or be strong, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. Why does he use this breadth, length, height, and depth? People get into this and they go, this is the, these are these different dimensions and psychological, and I've read this in commentaries where people do this, but all you got to do is go back up to the end of chapter 2 where he's talking about the body of Christ as a temple or a building. And when you have a building, it's got height and it's got length, and we'd say it has width. But they looked at it in four ways. You got height going up, but you got depth also going down. You, they, they looked at a foundation going down. They looked at the building going up. We don't look at it that way, but that's the way they did. So they're looking at the dimensions of a structure. And he says, I'm praying. When I talk to God, I'm like, ah, God, help these Ephesian believers. I want them to see how big this temple, this building of God is. It's not a wall of the nations. Or one wall over here of Jews. It's all four walls sitting on a foundation which is Christ made up of all of us. And he says, I want them to have that. Notice it's rooted and grounded in love because you're going to have love for all of them. He goes, um, oh, I turned my page again. Sorry about that. <laughs> and then verse 19, and to know then, experientially know the love for the Christ. I think this is the love that you have for the whole Christ. That's the point. Not just the love for those Christians that are like you. I've struggled with this my whole life. To this day, I, I struggle with this because I run into believers sometimes that aren't like me and I'm thankful that God is growing me and I'm finding that they're believers that aren't quite like me. They don't view the world exactly the way I do and I don't want to just go, get over here, I want to hit you on the head with my Bible. Not so like that so much anymore. But I used to feel like that. I never did that. Well, sometimes maybe I verbally tried to put them in my put them in their place, which never works. But you actually can have a love for the all of it, even like these people having a love for those believers that come from a Jewish background or those believers that come from the background of the nations, and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Remember that fullness? He was talking about that at the end of chapter one. When he's talking about the church, the one that is filling all things and all ways, filling all the parts of the body through all the parts. Every time you have fullness in this letter, every time the word full, fill, or fullness is used in this letter, it always is used of some con in some connection with the body of Christ. Even Ephesians 5.18, being filled by the Spirit, is really... He doesn't say that until he's made all these other statements. That's a whole other Bible study. And so then he makes a statement at the end of all of this. He says, to whom, to, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. Have any of you ever talked to God about something? There's something you're concerned about and you talk to God about it. And there's a part of you that says, God, I want to ask for this. But you're like, I'm not going to ask God for that. So it's almost like I'm asking too much. But he says, you know what? He says he's able to do beyond what you ask or even what you think because he knows that some of you don't actually ask for it, but you're thinking it. You'd like to ask for it, but he could do beyond that. And I don't think he's saying by that that, God, my car's broken down. I need a car so I can get someplace. And 
So I'd like a car, uh, could it be a Maserati? <laughs> no, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying that there's things sometimes in your relationship with other believers that you should ask for, but there's some things even you think, you go, maybe that's a little too far. Maybe that's too much. I mean, this is the body of Christ. People like me, let's, let's be honest, God, maybe, maybe I ought to just back off. No, even beyond what we ask or think, according to the power that works with it, it comes back to that idea of power that he said back over there in chapter one. He says that power that raised Christ, that's the power that's working us. That's the power that gives you and I the ability to actually get along with one another, actually live up to that hope, actually function like we really are part of the body with these people that may not be like us from a worldly, earthly perspective. And he gives us that power so that we can comprehend the size of the body of Christ, the size of the temple, the size of God's dwelling place. And when I say size, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying size in terms of how many Christians make up the body of Christ. There's 8 billion people on the world. You think a billion people are Christians? That's not, I'm not looking at it in terms of that. I'm saying size in terms of the fact that there's a lot of times that we, we're, we're hesitant to let some people in the body of Christ simply because they don't see something the way I do. We're not, we're not talking about a disagreement about who God is or the gospel. We're not saying anything like that. But it's just that, well, they hold to this thing over here. They think we ought to speak in tongues. Or maybe they're a little overly enamored with Israel, whatever it might be. But he says, no, be able to be strong for all of that. And then verse 21, to him then is glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all the generations forever and ever. And I would say, I would translate those ends. It's glory by means of the church. We, we the church are a means by which God's reputation is displayed. And that in turn by Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus is the one that is the head, is directing a lot of the affairs and things that are going on with regard to the body. And together, those things are how God shows something about what he's doing. As the church is working with what Jesus Christ is doing, directing this. Again, this comes back to this whole idea of the Christ. And Jesus Christ is the head directing this. And he says, God gets glory. And he's going to get it out into the ages. He's not, this doesn't stop at the rapture. The rapture just, right now we're still in the entryway here. This whole life, doing church like we're doing, whatever it is, this is the entryway. The rapture then moves us out into eternity. And he's going to continue to show this out there in the future. So here's the point, as we've been looking through these things is that he keeps mentioning glory, glory, glory through these sections in here because he's trying to get it through to these Ephesians. God is showing something about his incredible, generous reputation, exercising grace and exercising power in your lives for all of us as believers to actually work together. And when we refuse to get together and refuse to work together and think, I can go it alone, or I don't need those believers, when we function like this, then we're not really showing forth God's reputation because that's not what he's not trying to show a reputation with loners. He's showing a reputation 
by believers functioning together as a body, as an assembly, as a house, as a temple. Everybody follow that? We ran through a lot of stuff today, a lot of verses. I'd encourage you, if you, didn't, if you haven't done it, take these three chapters. Take the whole book of Ephesians. Sit down. Open your Bible. Read through it. Read through it in one sitting. It's not that hard to do. And uh, I did it again last night. I wanted. I was. I usually read through the, my scriptures on Saturday nights, but I was playing with my grandson, so I waited till I went to bed, and then I <laughs> read through my through these things all over again. And uh, just it's amazing just how quick and easily you can just get this picture of what God is doing. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for your plan and design for the body of Christ bringing us all together, people from disparate backgrounds all kinds of things that would divide us. And yet all of those things have been removed and taken away as you see us in Christ, as Jesus Christ has put us together and created in himself one new man. And as the Spirit fits us together like living stones, making up this temple that is the body of Christ, this temple which is your, your settled down at home dwelling place. And as we think about this, let it impact the way we relate to other believers We've got other believers right here in this community and other believers you bring across our paths in other places. Help us as we interact with them to do so in a manner that would reflect this reality. And we would thank you for all of this then. Amen. Have a great afternoon. Hopefully you can stay and enjoy some food with us. <laughs>